Well, good morning, everyone. If you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter, there's a couple verses there that I want to look at before we get into Revelation. Second Peter chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 10. And it reads, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of people or what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. This set of verses actually sets up this entire series that we've been going through and actually goes back into the previous series on Revelation chapter 20. And it sums all of it up nicely. The question that I've kept asking and will keep asking is this. Are you looking forward to heaven? Truly, are you looking forward to heaven? Peter in this passage includes you and he includes me when he says in verse 13, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Do we consider this to be real? I've met a lot of people who believe that there is some sort of God, but believe that this life is it. And there's actually quite a few Christians that really don't believe that there's much else after this, that eternity will kind of suck compared to this life. When they look at everything that we have here, that, oh, well, we can go on trips to places like Tahiti, or we can see, uh, you know, a, a sunset in the Sahara Desert, you know, that's, that's beauty and that's wonderful, but eternity is kind of this weird, obscure thing, and I don't really know what it's going to be like, and I'm really not looking forward to it. Well, if we can see beauty in this cursed and damned world, then can you imagine? Well, we can't even imagine how beautiful it's going to be with what Peter is saying here. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, that all that we see, all that we know, will be made so vibrant and beautiful beyond what we have ever seen or known. And so are you looking forward to heaven? Jesus gives us a lot of instruction for how the end of the world will come about in his time here on earth. He talks about it quite a bit uh, if you go uh, back in scripture. And perhaps one of the most striking passages is in Matthew chapter 13. So if you want to turn there, there's a couple stories that Jesus goes through, a couple parables that he tells that have to do with the end of the age. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, that's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares or the weeds also. 
So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Or pull the weeds out? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the weeds, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat uh, into my barn. Into my barn. And then dropping down uh, in verse 34, uh, there's a couple more parables that Jesus mentions, but in verse 34, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. The end of the age is nothing new. It's nothing new. This isn't a new message. This isn't a new story. In fact, it's perhaps one of the oldest things, as Jesus says, uh, as Jesus, as he's telling these parables, fulfills the words of the prophet that say, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundations of the world. From the very beginning, the end of the world was set. From the very beginning. The final destruction of this heaven and this earth that we see around us, that the futility of this world, well, all of that was set when the foundations of this world were laid. And like Peter, we look for a new heavens and a new earth. But we should be longing for that time when all of this will be made new, when God will make all things new, when we will enter into a time, into a period, where things will be so far beyond what we can even express in our lives here. And John, he struggles writing what he sees. Ezekiel struggles with what he sees. Daniel struggles with what he sees. They all struggle to describe what that new heaven and that new earth will be like because there's nothing in our language, no way of expressing what all of it will be like. And so Jesus here is giving an illustration for those who are listening various parables describing the end of the age. And so it is nothing new. In Matthew 13, again, dropping down to verse 44, it mentions, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking again. Again, the kingdom of, of heaven is like unto treasure, hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buryeth, and buyeth, that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, this is where Christians often falter. We forget the treasure that we have in Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ reminds us of the importance of selling everything that we have, of giving up everything that connects us to this world and longing for him. Longing for him. And it's interesting that the two things mentioned here are gold and pearls, two uh, qualities of the New Jerusalem. But to give up everything that we have in this life, to sacrifice all of it. Why? Because the treasures found in God are far superior. 
and it's where Christians often falter, that we love this life too much. We love this world too much to give up everything. Uh, Norman Tilly, uh, he passed away a couple of years ago now, but uh, he lived out in, in Portersville Prairie, and he was one of my mentors, and he, he always mentioned, I, I, I remember it very vividly, he said, well, when the Lord comes to call us home, he's going to have to pull a lot of people up by their ankles, because they'll just be grabbing onto the world, just trying to hang on for dear life. And I remember that very vividly, and it's true. A lot of Christians, they live their lives in this world, and they're consumed by this world, and bear little to no fruit for the kingdom of God. Do you desire heaven? C.S. Lewis, Lewis said it best when he said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. That's an interesting description, but it's true. It's true. We would oftentimes sacrifice eternal joy and satisfaction in Christ for the temporal things of this life. We would sacrifice much for very little. And if we're honest with ourselves, brutally honest, how often do we think about heaven with God? Just stop and ask yourself, when was the last time that I yearned for heaven? that I longed to see my Savior face to face. And does it fill us with joy? Does looking forward to that day when Christ returns, does it fill us with joy? Are we filled with anticipation for that day when he calls us home? When the voice of the archangel and the trump of God are sounded and we are called up to be with the Lord forever, never to leave his side. Does that fill us with joy? Or do we sort of look at that and say, well, that's kind of nice, but that's nice for another day. You see, the early church and what Jesus is getting across here is that there was wonderful anticipation for the coming kingdom. That there was high anticipation for the day then that, that the saints would be with their Lord, that they would be with their Savior, the one who gave himself and died in their place when they would see him face to face. Do we? anticipate heaven turn to revelation 21 revelation 21 and we'll just read the first eight verses like we've been doing the last couple weeks revelation 21 verse 1 john writing and i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. 
And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 5, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He who sat on the throne. Verse chapter 20, we took a look at the one who occupies that throne. It's God and it's Christ. They're both seated on that throne. They are the ones. It is Christ who has given judgment over mankind. Why? Because he knows mankind best because he was man, fully man and fully God. And so this one that sits, up, sits on the throne says, Behold, I make all things new. And that's really all that can be said about eternity. That's really all there is to say about eternity with Christ. John has seen things, again, that he is unable to describe. There are no words to describe the things that John has seen. And so what uh, God is saying here, Behold, I make all things new. It's really the only description that can be given for the new heaven and the new earth. And beyond that, we have in Isaiah chapter 64 that no man has heard or perceived what the Lord has planned for those that wait on him. And it's even quoted in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 where God's wisdom is being compared to the wisdom of man and how much wiser God is. And taking a look at all that he has prepared, that it hasn't even entered our minds what he has prepared for us. It goes beyond anything that we could imagine or anything that's possible in this life. Everything will be fundamentally different as the old gives way to the new. And John is completely overwhelmed by what he has seen, that he is, has to be reminded to keep writing. And that's the funny part of, of this verse. Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, write, for these words are true and faithful. John, pick up your quill and start writing again. Keep writing. You get the sense that John is just completely overwhelmed with what he has seen. He sees the one who occupies that throne and he just sort of stops and is in awe and shock at what he's seen. And that one who sits on that throne says, John, pick up your quill and start writing again. Why? Because these words are faithful and true. Those, those connections of words are mentioned several times in, in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 it mentions to the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, the faithful and true witness. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, And I saw a new heaven, uh, and I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Two words that describe the Lord are presented here in Revelation 21. Write, for these words are true and faithful. What's being mentioned here? God is reminding John that it is all about Christ. That everything that is mentioned in this chapter, in the previous chapters, and then the chapter to come, have to do with Christ. 
These words are faithful and true. What are these words? These words are about Christ. From the very beginning to the end, this book has to do with Christ. And it's another reminder for us that this isn't a self-help book. This isn't a book about us. This isn't a book that, well, we can just feel better by reading it. This book is not about you. This book is, if you could describe it, a love letter by God the Father about his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this is. And every single page of this book is dripping with the reality of who Christ is and his authority and all that he has done. In verse 6 of Revelation 21, that voice says again, said unto me, it is done. Now it sounds very familiar to the words that the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned on the cross. It is finished. Right? That brings to mind everything that happened there. And the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross saying, it is finished. Well, here it says, it is done. Jesus said, it is finished after paying the penalty for our sins. He had done the Father's will by going to the cross. But this here in Revelation 21 is the final recording of that phrase. Final recording of that phrase. At this point in history, everything will be finished. Everything. Everything is done. And this is the very moment that redemptive history is complete. It is done. Once and for all. Now, by what authority can the one who says this say this? Well, he goes on and says in verse 6, it is done, followed up by, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. I am Alpha and Omega. I can say all of this because I am God. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the one who laid the foundations of the world. I am the one who will rip them to pieces and burn them with fire. I am the one who creates the new heaven and the new earth. And just like all the questions mentioned in Job, and we took a look at, at Job's response to all of that last week, how he just says, in simple terms, I am nothing in comparison to you. And so God is reminding John, the reason that I can say it is done and put my final stamp on everything is because I am God, because I am Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I am the final authority over all of creation. I am. I am. In Revelation chapter 1, the risen Christ, uh, as, as John sees uh, Christ risen, he tells John that he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And he also tells John to not worry because he is the first and the last. In Revelation chapter 22, near the end of that chapter and near the end of the Bible, it states, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In other words, I am the one in charge. I'm the one in charge. Nobody else. It's not you, John. Not that John is challenging God's authority in any way in this. 
But he is just reminding John and reminding us that God is the final authority over all creation. And we are to be in awe of who he is. We are. And we should be. And it's important that this authority of God is established here. Because in the next couple verses it describes who does and doesn't go into this new heaven, this eternity with Christ. In verse 6 it says, in the latter part of that verse, it says, I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. And followed up by verse 7, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Those who are athirst and those who overcome. Two phrases or qualifications are given to describe those who will be in this new eternal heaven, those who thirst and those who overcome. Those who thirst and those who overcome. For those who thirst, immediately our minds might go to the Samaritan woman uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ talks to and mentions that, you know, everybody who draws from this well is going to thirst again. But if you ask of me, I'll give you living water, and you will never thirst again. And in fact, it will be springing up within you as, as a well within you. And our minds might turn to that. I like the way uh, Isaiah describes it in Isaiah chapter 55. And we've been going back to Isaiah and Ezekiel quite often in reference to Revelation. So let's just go back there. Just keep up the, what we've been doing. But Isaiah... In chapter 55, I like the way that he puts it. Isaiah 55, and reading from verse 1. And Isaiah writes, O every one that thirsteth cometh ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come, come ye, buy and eat. Ye come by wine and milk without money and without price. Wherefore do ye spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness, or uh, a better translation would be abundance, and most of the translations would probably have that word. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. This eternity is for those who are thirsty. Those who are thirsty, the one who isn't satisfied with this world. The one who doesn't go after the things of this world and fills themselves with everything that there is. It's not for that person, it's for those who thirst after God. And John hears from God what Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 55. He hears directly from God. One of my favorite songs is based on Psalm 42. Uh, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. One of my favorite songs and one of my favorite psalms. And that's what Isaiah is getting after, and that's what John hears and sees. And there are numerous other times in Scripture where the idea of thirsting after God is brought up. Jesus mentions it multiple times in his time on earth, so it's no surprise that it's brought up in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. And finally, in Revelation 22, it's mentioned for the last time. The last time. 
Well, what does it mean? What God is saying is that anyone who thirsts, anyone who is not satisfied with this world and longs to be with him, longs after him, will be given eternal satisfaction. They will no longer be thirsty. They will be completely and utterly satisfied in him. In him. Verse 7, he that overcometh. Now this section also mentions that, that heaven belongs to those who overcome. And we'll just let scripture interpret scripture and scripture define this. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. That's it. That's it. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. This idea of overcoming is brought up multitudes of times in Revelation. Uh, go back to the letters to the seven churches and you can see it there several times. It's mentioned to he that overcometh I'll grant to eat. He shall not hurt by the second death. He shall have authority. I'll give him the morning star. He'll be clothed in white garments. He, he will be given a pillar in the temple. He will sit down with me on my throne. And it goes on and on. He that overcometh all these things will be given unto them. All of this, all of this is due to the work of Christ. All of it. And I want to remind you that salvation, that overcoming, is nothing of your own doing in the sense that you do a set series of things and poof. Well, I'm good. <laughs> Many false doctrines have been based, have based salvation on works. And many true Christians have been warped into thinking that if they step out of line even once, that they immediately lose their salvation. I find that nowhere in Scripture. I am not more powerful than God to keep me. He is the final authority. He is the final figure. He is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He died for my sin paid the penalty on the cross, and there is nothing by his grace alone, there is nothing that I can do in of myself to lose the salvation found in Christ. Nothing. And so we have to be mindful of that. The idea of overcoming here is not that we in of ourselves have to do a set series of things or a set amount of rituals in order to keep our salvation. Rather, our salvation is solely found in Christ and him alone. He is the authority that holds it, that keeps it. It is reserved in heaven. Everything, all our treasure, everything that we have in Christ is reserved in heaven. It is his to keep. It is not ours to snatch away. The latter part of verse 7 is again another wonderful phrase, and it sort of sums up what's mentioned in, in verse 3. I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And that's the greatest privilege that we have. The greatest privilege that we have. The very fact that we will see and be with God. See and be with God. Who long for a city whose foundation is built by God, for those whose entire identity is found in Christ. And just like in Revelation 22 where it says, 
His name shall be on their foreheads. The ones found in eternity are those whose entire identity is wrapped up and found in Christ. That's why his name is written on their foreheads in Revelation 22. Because their identity is not their own. They have been crucified with Christ. And they live for him. Those who have put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the focus in this chapter now changes in verse 8 to those who won't be there. At this point, all who are not in heaven have already been cast into the lake of fire, and we found that and we studied that in Revelation chapter 20. But this list is a sobering reminder for us. Again, we looked at it in depth last series in Revelation 20. That great white throne and all those who were found unworthy, unfit, those who weren't covered by the blood of the Lamb were cast into the lake of fire. And it says multiple times in scriptures there will be gnashing of teeth. There will be biting and gnashing of teeth. It's a horrible place. It's a place that no one would ever want to go to. Although the world, uh, and I was reading uh, several articles this week, um, uh, sort of bashing Christianity and, and saying how, how foolish it is and how it is, it is better to go to hell than go to heaven to be with Christians. That's absurd. Anybody, demons don't want to go to hell. Satan doesn't want to go to hell. And so this verse here in Revelation 21, as magnificent as the first seven verses are, we come to this very sobering verse and a reminder for us and a warning to those who do not believe. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. An important thing to note is that this list isn't saying that if I tell a lie, for example, that you know, I'm immediately doomed to eternal destruction. If that was the case, nobody here would be left standing. However, when people are characterized by these things, when they are identified by these things, when their lives are defined by this list, that's the sign that they are not a Christian. They shall know me, or they shall know you by your works. If they are identified with these things, Paul gives a similar list of activities and sins and then goes on to say, such were some of you. And he was talking to the Corinthian believers. But the patterns of these sins, or those sins that Paul mentions, and these ones listed here, had been broken in the lives of the Corinthian believers by the grace of God. It does not mean that they were sinless and perfect. They still sinned, and they were still not perfect. They had issues and difficulties living the Christian life. They had times where they failed, just like you, just like me, just like everyone here. But their lives were no longer defined by such activities and sins. They were defined by Christ. They were defined by Christ. And so this list, a sobering reminder that not everyone gets into heaven. Not everyone will be there. 
I have family members who won't be there. And my dad's father, although my dad prays every single day for his salvation, if he doesn't accept the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, he's not going to be there. And so this list is a sobering reminder for us to go and tell the world about a God who loves them, a God who died for them, a God who is willing to forgive the very depths of our sin, a God who is willing to remember our sins no more if we put our faith and trust in him. Verse 9, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. John is now called to take a look at the Lamb's wife. And again, this contains the saints of all the ages, from the Old Testament to those who were around when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the earth, to the New Testament saints, to those during the tribulation period that are saved, to those during the millennial kingdom that are saved. The saints of all the ages are included in this as they descend to their final resting place, found in the very city of God, the bride, the Lamb's wife. Hebrews chapter 11, this will be the last passage that we look at. Hebrews 11, in verse 13, it mentions, These all died. All of the people mentioned previously, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had the opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Revelation 21, and he shall be their God, and he will dwell with them. Here in Hebrews 11, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. If you go and read all of Hebrews chapter 11 again, it's actually all of it pointing to the future time that we will spend with Christ. Each and every one of those listed was awaiting the day that the new Jerusalem would descend. That was what they were looking forward to. That's what they were anticipating that the city of God, the house of God, would be visible and made real to those who believe. Do you see how everything in Scripture points to this future? And it's why we must talk about it. It's why we must discuss it. It's why we must preach about it. As little as we do know about it, all of Scripture is littered with connections to heaven. And Revelation 20 through 21 are the final connecting blocks of all of Scripture, grabbing everything from the first line in Genesis right up to the epistles in the New Testament. Everything, all of Scripture, can be pulled and connected into Revelation 20, 21, and 22. All of it. Because it's all speaking of a time when we will see our Savior face to face. Now, if Hebrews chapter 11 
is all based around the expectation of heaven and this earth is simply a short stop on our way to eternity, that we are pilgrims in this life, it makes you consider where your own priorities are, doesn't it? Do we look for that city? Do we consider ourselves pilgrims? Do we thirst for God and hunger for Christ? And we began this message by asking a simple question, do you long for heaven? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we could open up your word. We thank you for the wonderful reminder that it is that you haven't left us blind as to the things of the future, but Father, that they are so more magnificent than we could ever express, that John, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, that all of them could express. Lord, might you plant in us a true longing and desire to be with you, and that our lives here, as we live them on this earth, that we would live them as pilgrims on, a way, on our way to our final resting place, on our way to home. Father, might we not consider anything in this life, and in this world rather, as home, but might we long for our eternal home where we will see our Savior face to face, where we will be blinded by the magnificence of his light and his glory. Father, might you just shine in our lives day to day, pointing us towards our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might magnify him and glorify him day after day. Father, give us the strength to serve you. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.